This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 64. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, Please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Chris Abraham, Chief Investment Officer of CVA Investment Management. I met Chris at an LD Micro conference and wanted to learn more about how he looks at the Microcap market. In this interview, we discuss Chris's value-based option strategy and his thoughts on what's been happening in the asset management space. The goal is to learn about how Chris runs his fund and how that has guided his microcap investing strategy. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 64 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Chris Abraham. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2018 Investor Conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me and some of the guests you may have heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 24 to 26, 2018 at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, and educational workshop and you get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known public and private microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 24 to 26, 2018 at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I have Chris Abraham on the program. He is the Chief Investment Officer of CVA Investment Management. Chris, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So for our audience, let's get your background. Sure. Uh, I grew up out here in Southern California Um, for college. I went to UCLA. Uh, After that, I uh, went to work at a tax advisory firm that used to be a part of Arthur Anderson, Uh, got a good background in tax. Um, After that, I worked at uh, Nuveen Investments, um, a subsidiary called NWQ, uh, domestic uh, value-oriented firm, Uh, got a great experience there. Um, After that, I went to uh, Chicago Booth for business school. Uh, Really loved uh, my time out there, so now that's where I live. After that, I actually started my own firm from my experiences 
working there, uh, interning at a variety of places like Aerial Investments, uh, Mercer Investment Consulting, and for a little bit at uh, Intel. Mm -hmm. And uh, ever, ever since then, been uh, running uh, my fund now for three years. So, uh, you know, quickly, I got to follow up. Who were you cheering for in the last NLCS? Was it the Cubs or the Dodgers? Oh, Dodgers. <laughs> All right, there you go. I had to keep that quiet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so Chris, how, how'd you get your start investing in microcap stocks then? Sure. I think it was sometime in college. Um, funny enough, I've always really liked investing. I don't know what attracted me to it. Um, ever since I was a kid, um, you know, my sitting there with my parents, we would watch uh, the news when we were little kids. Uh, the nightly business report was on, on PBS. And you, I didn't know what was going on. It was all these numbers talking about different businesses. But I just became more curious about learning things. And then um, ever since then, through middle school, I wanted to learn about business. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was mostly attracted to larger companies, because that's what was in the news. That's what you saw. Mm -hmm. And then I think around college is when um, I started to s say, oh, what are these small businesses that can really grow and that are doing really neat stuff? So that's probably around when I got interested. And then so that, that basically from there just led you to, all right, I'm going to be studying this at UCLA, the, the whole track, right? It, I think I knew, uh, as weird as it might sound, when I was much younger, I think in middle school, but I didn't really know that I could do it for a job until college. That was the weird, I was like, oh, you can get paid for this. Because <laughs> I didn't think I would be doing that full time. And um, so that's when I started to explore different areas and then microcaps were just an area that was just underfollowed, not as many people were there, and that's kind of what attracted me to it because everyone was focusing on the big things, and I was trying to find what are the opportunities that people might be missing. So then what, what is your criteria then for a potential new investment in a microcap stock? You know, how, what, how have you developed that over time? You know, that's a good question. Um, when I first started out, I was really interested in deep value special situations, some of the parts analysis saying, oh, look, this is trading below the value. It's real estate. You're getting the business for free, et cetera. And over time, I've kind of learned that's a you can make money doing that. And there's a lot of guys that do a great job at it. And occasionally, I'll look at that if it's really dirt cheap. But it's a really hard way to make money. And there's a lot of ways you uh, may or may not be right. And it could take forever to play out. And um, going through those experiences is how I kind of said, you know what, this is this is brutal. <laughs> this is this is hard, um, and that's where I got more attracted to uh, being disciplined and sticking with more quality names. Mm -hmm. And within microcap, there's a lot of startups, a lot of unprofitable companies. They're heavily reinvesting, raising money to do that. And um, so once I started narrowing it down, it became much more manageable. Where companies had good balance sheets, good management, had good incentives. And that's where I could kind of say, look, instead of there's 100 companies at this conference, there might be five or six that look really, really great. And if I can find one or two that are home runs, that's worth my time and make a concentrated investment. So you hit on a couple measures that you look for there, you know, uh, management pay, you know, mm -hmm. a couple other things, you know. So just to kind of lay it out, what, what are those criteria that you look for when you're scanning that list at a conference? You're like, OK, these are my five metrics that I go after, whatever. So I actually go through every name. Oh, okay. And because I, a lot of them I've never heard of before. Like like on OTC, I was checking out yesterday. There's over 10,000 securities listed on there. And so 
there's all the time you'll find a new company you've never heard of. So when I go to a conference or if I'm reading, I'll just look at it just to see what they do. Maybe I've met the management before at a previous company. So I'll say, oh, these guys are smart. I, I know nothing about the company. I'll just go sit down and catch up and see what they're working on now. So ideally, I, I like companies that they have a good growth runway. They're an attractive sector that even if they may not execute perfectly, the fundamental tailwinds of the sector can carry them mm -hmm. as well. But if you have good management, a good growth runway, and an actual profitable business model, that's kind of what I look for that can carry these companies from micro cap and hopefully to small cap and bigger. Um, unfortunately, um, what happens sometimes is they're so good they end up getting bought out. <laughs> so they never reach small cap status. So mm -hmm. those are the ideal ones that I like to find where if they have those good balance sheets, um, good cash flows, run by good management, you can sleep at night as well. Because sure. there's a lot, and especially in micro cap land, there, there's a lot of unforeseen things that can happen. Business sure. changes, um, life happens, and then you can get involved at a good time when all the fundamentals are working and mm -hmm. things will work itself out. So then what, what's your strategy after identifying a potential new investment? You know, so let's say you, whether you're at a going to a conference or not, or you know, you're just you're sitting at your desk and you see like, oh, it met all my criteria. You know, what do you do next? Then I have everything on a watch list. So right now I have a ton of names on my watch list, and then I'll have a more concentrated short list on things that meet the valuation side. Okay. So there's a lot of quality names that I follow that they're just not cheap enough mm -hmm. or um, I'm not ready yet. But then once I narrow it down on the other side to maybe 10, 15 names, I'm, I'm ready to buy this if there's a big down day or there's something going on, uh, if it drops on earnings or something bad happens. So mm -hmm. those I'm just always watching because in microcap, <laughs> one day you might uh, you know, be on the plane and you get off and you see a stock's down 20% for no reason because someone's liquidating or mm -hmm. something, for just for no, someone puts in a market order. <laughs> so that's when you just have to always kind of just keep an eye on it or set up alerts on your phone. So right. that's kind of why I have how I manage my two lists. And then do you, so I guess may, we may have missed a, skipped a step because, you know, let's say you identify it and then it immediately goes on either one of the watch lists or do you do any type of uh, qualitative follow-up, like meet with management, all that kind of stuff? Sure, yeah, absolutely. For So for due diligence, I'll, I'll try and meet management if I can. Um, some managements don't want to talk to investors, sure. <laughs> um, which is okay if they're doing their work. Uh, the, the proxy statement and corporate governance is pretty big for what I do because um, I think one thing you learn is that you're a minority holder sure. in a stock. So you don't control the cash flows, you don't control the direction of the business. So you have to trust management at the end of the day. And there's a lot of decisions they're making that you don't get to see mm -hmm. that are hidden. So even if they own 20, 30% of the stock, I've come across many microcaps where management is paying themselves very generous salaries and bonuses. Uh, they're uh, funding their nonprofit charities through the company. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're gifting shares, doing some things. So once you get to know them, you see their track record, you gauge their trustworthiness, um, make sure they have the right incentives through the proxy statement. Uh, you see their capital allocation. Are they reinvesting in the business properly? Are they not starving it? Mm -hmm. Are they you know, buying back shares appropriately? Or are they um, not overloading the company with debt unnecessarily? So those are um, on the management side. And then the rest is kind of understanding the business model. Um, how profitable can this business be? Is it sustainable? Mm -hmm. And then the last part is kind of just understanding, like I mentioned, that growth runway. 
um, if you're in, the, in a good business, you can keep growing for a long, long time and you can earn those cap returns on capital. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can really make some great money. Mm -hmm. Whereas a deep value situation, like I mentioned earlier, you might be just playing for a reversion to the mean and sure. a quick gain, things like that. But if it's a declining business or there's not much there, you could hold it for five, 10 years and your gain is kind of capped. Whereas a growing secular industry, you can also gain share in there. That's where you can really make a lot. So, you know, actually, I may not have asked this question before. I'm pretty sure I haven't. But I'm gonna, even if I did, I'm going to ask it again. So how, how do you calculate that growth runway? You know, what, what is your, your philosophy behind that? It, it's obviously imprecise, but it's areas with good um, secular tailwinds. So I'll give an example. Um, the pet industry. Okay. Everyone loves right. their pets. People will spend any amount of money on all sorts of accessories, necessities, things like that. So there's different niches such as vets, um, retail stores like PetSmart used to be public, uh, Petco, um, there's um, accessory companies, there's also uh, there's WAG, there's Rover, there's all those companies that are doing dog walking now. So those are areas where in the pet industry it's a great place to be. And then you have to find your niche where you have a competitive advantage and where you can grow. So if you have that secular tailwind, you'll be in a good place. Now, if you find that niche within there, that's where some magic happens. So for you, you know, how do you, uh, how do you then find that, that, that niche or that secular tailwind that is, you know, I'm going to look a little bit closer here at, at pets, you know, why, why pets? No, I'm not asking pets in particular, <laughs> but you don't, you don't. Sure. It, it's a lot of study about a lot of different areas. You know, you talk to a lot of managements, you talk to a lot of people, you know what I, more than management, I prefer talking to um, middle management, employees everywhere, because they're really passionate about what they do. They know their area. Some of them are experts. They'll tell you, hey, you don't want to be here. <laughs> this is an area you don't want to be in. This is an area that's going to be growing, and this is going to be profitable. This is not profitable business. So I try to find people in different sectors that know way more than me and say, okay, I need to do more research on that myself and, and judge it. And that's where I get a lot of leads. And then there's areas that I'm partial to where I think, okay, this is a good area. This is where you want to be over the next five, ten years. Because I think in some places we can say, you know what, over the next five, ten years, this is probably going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, asset management, it's probably a good bet over the next ten years fees are going to come down. Mm -hmm. And how is that? From there, you can kind of back into the industry, see what's going to happen. And then once you talk to each company, you can get a better idea of, okay, what's going to happen to the equity side? What are fees going to happen here? How is ETFs going to affect that? What's going to happen with mutual funds and loads? So there's a lot of different areas you can start at the industry level, or you can start at a company level and say, hey, this is a really good industry. So you can back into it either way. You know, that's a good segue because uh, and my comment on all that is that, you know, you start down one rabbit hole and you can just keep on going and come back up and then go down another one as, <laughs> just as easily. <laughs> so true. That, that, that's actually what, how my days are. Well, you, you just go down different rabbit holes and uh, sometimes it doesn't work out like you think it is. But every once in a while you strike gold and you're like, wow, this is really something. And if you find some companies within there that you never heard of, you're like, wow, this is going to be really interesting. Now that's when you start the due diligence that I mentioned on the corp governance, the capital allocation, et cetera. I, I was going to say that that's our theme for this interview today because I have so many topics I want to talk to you about. You know, when we met at, the, at a recent conference, you know, that's, I think that's what happened to us. We ended up just talking about so many different things. So I thought, you know what, we got we to gotta translate that to the podcast. 
So uh, we're starting down one rabbit hole right now. And, and it actually ties into something you were alluding to regarding ETFs, you know, and um, I, I think you, 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 I had this one question, you know, about the ETFableness of microcaps. Can you comment on that? Sure. Um, a few weeks ago, I went to the um, national ETF conference they have out in Hollywood, Florida. I've gone the last few years, and um, it's actually more of a product and marketing conference, mm -hmm. more than an investment conference. And there's a lot of advisors there trying to figure out, okay, do I replace individual stocks in my portfolio? Can I replicate it through Vanguard and BlackRock? And, and so I go as an investor to kind of gauge the asset management industry, look at individual companies, see what products are going to affect equities and so on. And for me, I enjoy that. Um, from a personal and business point of view. And for microcaps, like we were talking about earlier, I wanted to see how much are microcap ETFs or active institutional mutual funds affecting the business. And uh, for ETFs, they're not active yet, on, at least on the micro side. They're just passive. They track the Russell microcap index. So the BlackRock fund, which is the largest, uh, the symbol is IWC. It has 880 million. Just for full disclosure, are you a shareholder? I don't own okay. uh, or never have owned that uh, ETF, but it has $880 million in assets um, as of a couple days ago, yet that's a massive fund. You can't really invest in microcap sure. um, uh, very usefully. But um, when I uh, looked at the top holdings, because I just wanted to see, does this actively track? What are the positive attributes or negatives? And if you look at the top holdings, the top holding is Anapsis Bio, which I've never owned or uh, do not ho currently hold. Uh, it's a $2.8 billion market cap. Mm. And then if you go through the rest of the uh, top 10, it's $2 billion, $2 billion, $2.7 billion, and so on. And these are not microcap companies. And yet there are family offices, advisors, a lot of retail that own this, thinking that they're getting microcap exposure. And my point coming back to this is if you raise too much money, you can't effectively <laughs> invest in microcap because you just get too big. And that's something that active funds and ETFs are having trouble with. So when you raise so much money, you can do microcap. And that's where I think if you're even a retail or small funds, you have a huge advantage where you can have concentrated positions and sub 50 million, sub $100 million market caps that these guys can't touch. And everything they're doing is rules-based. So when they're buying it, they have inflows, they have outflows, they're buying proportionate positions. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can uh, find a lot of gaps. So that's another reason why I look at this, because as ETFs are growing so much, at least flows into them, that's going to affect how we look at our stocks. If they could become bigger and bigger holders uh, in our positions. They might buy just drive up the stock because they have to fill out the position of the ETF, or if it's an outflow, they may drive it way down and for non-fundamental reasons. So in essence, then, I mean, can you create a microcap ETF or is there just way too much risk? It's a great question. And that's something that I struggle with. And, you know, even from if we think about spitballing and saying, can we create our own business? <laughs> and I, I think that it's a catch 22. I think you can at a limited size. But the problem is once you get big enough, you can't replicate any microcap index properly because you get too big if you're successful. Right. Just like this BlackRock fund has been successful in raising so much money, they have to move up in market cap and they're in a couple billion dollar small cap companies. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the advantages um, us as active managers have is that you can't accurately ETF the microcap uh, universe, in my opinion. 
maybe I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong at some point, but I think just the way the market works, it's it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. So another question I have, and this is related to your your answer that you just gave, is this idea of uh, institutional microcap perspective versus emerging managers. You know, it seems that especially in the microcap space, there seems to be an advantage to the retail investor as well as the more smaller fund manager. You know, can you, can you comment on that? Sure. It's, uh, I, I've been fortunate to work at a couple of larger um, small and micro funds uh, in the U.S., and I've gotten to know a lot of the institutional um, fellows in the business, and uh, they just have a different structure. Because uh, I'll say if you run $100 million, for example, um, that's much less than some of these guys manage. And if you want to invest in a $50 million microcap and uh, – Buy the thing. <laughs> right. And if you, so if you just want, let's say, a three, uh, 3% position of your $100 million fund, mm-hmm. you're already a significant holder. You're almost a 10%, 8% holder. Mm-hmm. And that it's going to take a long time <laughs> to build that position if it's a liquid. It's going to take a long time to get out. So from just a practical standpoint, they just can't do a lot of things. And that's, and that's only at $100 million. That BlackRock one we mentioned was $900 million. Yeah. And so some active managers, if you manage 200, 300 million in AUM, it is really hard to do that in microcap. I, I, I think you start reaching, um, if you're doing sub $100 million companies uh, at a concentrated level, I think you start getting into trouble at 50, 75 million. Mm-hmm. Just because when you're trying to deploy that amount of money, it's, it's hard. Because some of these stocks, they may trade a few thousand dollars a day could take a year to build a position, which smaller funds in retail, they're patient enough and they can afford to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one advantage that um, uh, smaller funds and retail have over institutional guys because they just have different, and they also have mandates that they have to meet. Some of them have minimum market cap restrictions. Some of them have liquidity restrictions. So that causes them to shift up market as well, mm-hmm. almost similar to the ETF. Or because they're such small market caps, you have to hold too many positions. So if you run a 100, 200 million fund, you might have to hold 100, 200 positions. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, what's the effectiveness of that? Like we were discussing, if you, a retail person has no problem holding a 10 or 20% position in something they think is really undervalued, mm-hmm. a $200 million fund can't do that. They might have a 1% or 2% position. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this it's like, it's it's interesting. I mean, don't when when you think some of these larger institutional funds would have, you know, maybe allocate uh, like even if they raise 100 million, you know, maybe they have the smaller like, you know, 10 to 20 million just for their microcap fund. You know, like do do you, have you been seeing that out there or I have seen some funds that have raised separate accounts or others where they said we're going to have a dedicated 30 40 million dollar microcap fund. Mm-hmm. And they've done well and you can do okay with that. Um, the issue, though, is it's hard to build a firm just with microcap money. Interesting. Because if you're trying to build a big business, you can only, like I said, manage well maybe 100, 200 million max in microcap where it gets difficult. Maybe some people can do 100, 200 names. I, for me, I can't do it personally. I mm-hmm. have a much smaller portfolio. I like to be concentrated. And so if you're building a business, you know, if you want to hire a couple analysts, do things, it, the economics become really hard from a business model point of view. So that's why a lot of people who are successful in microcap and they raise 100, 200 more million dollars, they yeah, say, no let's, they, they graduate. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you graduate to small cap and say, oh, great, now we can raise a couple billion or more. 
And so that's what ends up happening in asset management, funny enough, where if you're great, you just keep moving up. And when you get to mega cap, you can raise tens of billions right. and you can hire a lot of people and have a great empire. So that's, I think, another, aside from the restrictions and mandates that apply to micro, is that just from a business model point of view, mm -hmm. big asset managers, it's not really worth their time mm -hmm. to do a micro cap fund. Because mm -hmm. if you run a couple billion small cap fund, okay, you raise 100, 200 million micro, that's it. Yeah. So why waste time there when you can say, let's spend all our time on marketing our small cap fund and raise hundreds of millions more? Right. So what's the, the main drawback you're facing, you know, in your business? Even I have trouble um, buying some names that I want. You know, I was just looking at my phone and <laughs> one of my uh, names I love, it's traded uh, $5,000 worth today. <laughs> and uh, I'm hoping to become one of the larger holders, but it's going to take me a long time to get this company and it's trading well below replacement cost. It, it's a great business, but because it's so illiquid, I know that no one else, everyone else just writes it off immediately. They, right. So on the institutional side, I know they're not gonna be in there. Right. Um, there's uh, one ETF in there, so I know that's a rule-based one that went in. So I think um, that's hard for me already. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say I know that <laughs> once you get bigger and bigger, it, they're gonna have huge problems and that's why they graduate to 100 200 million caps which are a lot more liquid mm -hmm. um, other challenges are probably um, maybe just getting information mm -hmm. that that probably takes a lot of time mm -hmm. so you can do all the legwork it's just a time commitment right um, and kind of dovetailing on that um, we're talking about institutional versus emerging managers and retail I wouldn't say they have an informational advantage because Bloomberg and FAXA and a lot of the Reuters but yeah, they don't help you in microcap. No, I, I can tell you from personal experience, just, you know, my, uh, I'm, I'm getting my MBA right now. And uh, in my finance class, you know, we're doing our stock uh, uh, project where we're, you know, doing all, <laughs> the whole thing, you, you know. Um, and, you know, he, our, our professor is basically saying, you know, just go through value line and just pick one from the 1700 and he goes i've been using this for years you know this is what everybody uses and i'm thinking to myself like i really wanted to do a micro cap but i'm like okay wait i got a month to do this i'm running you know i was like oh, okay I, I know i can't let me just i'll, I'll just do one of the ones on the 1700 but it I got me thinking more where i was like oh man there's really there's there's no there's no real data set that is put together like a value line for micro caps. You're absolutely right. Do we have a new business? I don't know. Hey, <laughs> hey, 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 uh, trademark. <laughs> it, no, that, that's a great point. And that's, you know what happens? Uh, I was in, um, I, I don't even remember which uh, uh, service I was using the other day. The ticker won't even come up oh. for a lot. Of, so some of the services, if you type it in, you, you can't even find it. So you literally have to go to company websites. You literally have to go to sec.gov or some are dark and not reporting all the time. That's more rare. Mm -hmm. But institutional guys have to do that too. But I can tell you having been on that side, a lot of times they're lazy and only want to use sell side research. Mm -hmm. So if there's sell side that happens to cover some of these microcaps, they may get involved. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to do the extra digging mm -hmm. to go through a lot of these microcaps. They'll say, because of their liquidity and other restrictions, they'll say, oh, is there coverage? Can we look through it in fact set or here? there's so many names out there so you're gonna because you have to narrow it down what are you gonna default to you're gonna default to a few easy ways to either screen for them and fax it or Bloomberg or some other way but some of these the screens just don't work properly or right. microcap you know it's just all over the place so I think that's actually a, 
interesting thing where even if you pay whatever it is for a Bloomberg now, it's not going to help you that much in microcap. And I think that's a huge advantage where if you're retail or a small fund, if you do all your due diligence, buy the book, travel, meet companies, you're beating 99% of people. You know what's crazy, and I and I think I've talked about this before as well, is, you know, you would think, I mean, you have your Buffets, your Mungers, you know, all, all these incredibly famous investors that really got their start in microcaps and using a tried and true value investing strategy where, you know, everybody has their different ways that they, you know, uh, manipulate that for their own use. But what's still, it's still just unfathomable, fathomable to me that like, this isn't something that more people would employ and want to do, you know? And I mean, there's many different reasons why, you know, there's a lot of extra work that needs to be done. You know, maybe there's active managers that are, don't want it to go out there because they want to, you know, they want to keep that edge. But, you know, in your opinion, what what is it? Like, why hasn't it hit? Why are more people doing this? It's been around for years. They teach it in every business school class. I think it's a variety of reasons. Like you hit on a few of them. Um, I think there's structural reasons, behavioral. Um, it's not in the news. It's not interesting to people. I mean, a lot of businesses, it's the same old do. thing every day. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I was looking at the news for uh, one of my one of my microcaps. I think that I was on my watch list was down 15% the other day. I was like, okay, great. Mm. No, th there was literally no news in the past year except four earnings releases. There's zero press releases. And it's a very conservative one. Yeah, yeah. and they just, yeah. they just don't, you know, there's just not a whole lot going on. I mean, they just do the same thing every day. And I think that if they're not on services, people say, oh, there's not sell-side research. That's kind of a quick um, fast-forward so I can get up to speed on the company without mm -hmm. going through all their uh, source documents. And I think also from uh, a business point of view, like we talked about, you just can't raise that much money and do a good job in microcap. Right. And so because of that, there's limited interest. There's interest for a while, and then once you're successful, you're done. Mm -hmm. And because you can't do so many fun um, individual microcap stocks well, and you need to hire too many people to do the groundwork and legwork. Um, so I think it's a lot of structural reasons, um, behavioral. I think there's some there mm -hmm. um, that apply to you know large cap as well, but I think a lot of it is just the size. Sure. It's just it. People lose interest, or it's hard to figure out, mm -hmm. or. But even on the retail side, you know, like with the crypto craze, you know, everybody was, myself included, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, you know, especially because it, it was, you know, in all the news. First thing I went to was look at all the, the penny cryptos and see what, what was there and what was available. And I have a ton of friends that that's the same exact thing they did too. And I'm, and, and I took a step back thinking to myself, this is what I did with microcaps as well. And, but people who have that same excitement about, let's say, cryptos or any asset that happens to be the new thing, you know, why, why aren't they then using that same type of logic and saying, oh, well, let me look at the stock market then, you know, there might be something here as well. That, that's a great point. I think it's, I think it's personality driven. Mm. So for you, you were instantly attracted to those small ones and saying, hey, these have the most potential or what could, they could be, whatever it is. And I think a lot of people, they may think about stuff they use as consumers or what's tried and true, and they may be more attracted to that stability or what they can understand. But I think to do microcap, it requires a little more, uh, you have to be uh, a little more entrepreneurial. Sure. You have to be willing to go hunt down and find things that may or may not exist. And it's a little, it's a little different. So I, I think that's where a behavioral and 
uh, point comes in where it's more personality driven because you know, we've met a lot of characters in microcap. Sure. It's very different than a large cap conference. I'll tell you that. <laughs> sure. it's, a, it's a very it's a very different um, um, personalities that are involved, what they're looking for, how they approach things, and it's fun. Mm -hmm. So I th I think that's where you know you have the business side, you have the behavioral side, structural. It all kind of plays in, and that's kind of where we are. Why the market is, why it is. That's a good segue to my next question, you know, because uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is that behavioral and structural issues in microcap investing. I mean, you, you hit on a few key points, especially on the, the fun side, but, you know, what are some of those personality traits that we see at all these conferences that kind of lend itself to microcap? So, because there might be some people who are listening and be like, you know, I don't know if I was ever really, you know, I don't know if I have the mindset or the, or the, the discipline. Because you really do have to have a lot of discipline, I think, to some degree for microcap investing. So, you know, what are some of those characteristics and maybe how can people adopt them? Sure. I think there's a lot of risk taking. Sure. Whether it's um, financial or uh, career risk. Because mm -hmm. people are putting a lot on the line when they're starting a venture, how they're, uh, you know, uh, saying, hey, this is my financial and my, and my occupation. I'm putting everything on the line. And then there's others where you're, they may be just completely different, uh, not just necessarily venture, publicly traded venture capital businesses, but they're just small businesses. Mm -hmm. That they might be industrial ones, consumer, uh, real estate, but they just are in one locality. They might be in Orange County or they might be in Chicago or New York, but they're only in one neighborhood. And the family or whoever's running it just hasn't had that interest in growing it. So as an investor, you might look at it and say, you know what, I'm really attracted to this situation. This interests me. This, these ones, eh, I don't really understand these biotech names. I don't have a science background. I'm not into that. So I think a lot of it is personality driven where, oh, I'm very interested in this. Or, you know what, this is small and risky. They have one product. I don't, I don't get it. I'm going to stay away from it. So I think within the range of microcap, it's interesting because you have that range of personalities where you have these guys that are pretty brash and starting new things, trying to fundraise. Then you have other guys that are actually quite conservative. Mm. They own real estate and they, have, they don't have a mortgage. <laughs> like they're that conservative. And I met a lot of these guys and I'm like, why don't you want to get a mortgage? I'm like, it's three or 4%. You can reinvest it here. You can buy back your cheap stock. There's but different options. Just to clarify, you're talking about management. Management, it, okay, on, on okay. the management side. And they're like, this is just, we, we don't feel like it. We don't want to. <laughs> and so as an investor, you can find those uh, more uh, venture capital-like investments that are starting out, if that's your personality, or you might be attracted to mm -hmm. a lot of conservative businesses and microcap. So I'm more attracted to a lot more of the conservative ones or the ones with a good base that have good potential to grow. The speculative ones can work out, but the variety of outcomes are very wide. Mm -hmm. And I prefer a little bit more narrow and a little bit, you know, kind of taking away the tail risk, sure. so to speak. So my personality has been driven more toward those type of companies. Mm -hmm. Whereas I know other guys are more interested in saying, oh, what could this be? It's a new cure for this, or it could be, you know, some newfangled thing in industrials. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where people just should say, hey, what, what attracts me mm -hmm. to this? Mm -hmm. If these aren't interesting, don't do it. Because right. there's plenty of you know large companies that are great, but I think in microcap they'd be like, you know what, this is in my neighborhood. This is a small company. They own a few warehouses here. Let me go learn about them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where it's, do you have that entrepreneurial nature and finding something you enjoy doing? Because those are the two things that will make it much more fun. Whereas if you're looking at some sectors you don't care about, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter micro, large. It's you're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is, you know, you have that entrepreneurial spirit and also wanting to, you care about your finances and wanting to build wealth. You know, I feel like that's something that you really have to feel if you're going to want to get into microcaps. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be bored as hell reading that SEC filing, (laughs) you know? And, And you can get more a little more involved in the business than you think you can attend the annual meeting you might be one of the only couple people there you can actually get to know management talk to them learn about the business especially if you're interested so this could manifest itself in a lot of ways not just making money but you'll have a really good time because you'll and then if they start a new business or you might find some new things that are interesting you can go into that so like we were talking about rabbit holes right sure you just go down a new one Mm -hmm. so we just covered behavioral issues in microcap investing. Now, what I'm, another thing I'm curious about now is, you know, structural issues that you're seeing in micro microcap investing in terms of the infrastructure uh, that facilitates, you know, investors meeting with companies and potentially new, you know, maybe a lack of new companies coming on the scene. You know, what, what are you seeing? I think in the overall market at large, there's been a good amount of studies and articles written talking about how listings are going down in the overall market. But um, I think we mentioned earlier, uh, OTC has over 10,000 securities listed. Um, some are ADRs of foreign companies that are large cap, but I think there's a lot of uh, potential areas in there that are still there to invest. So I don't think that's a problem. Um, as far as structure, um, I, I, th- I think one of the things that I notice um, when I'm trying to buy some illiquid names is that, let's say the stock is at 20. and uh, the bid ask might be nineteen fifty to twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. I've noticed many times when I put in my order for nineteen fifty a limit order, all of a sudden it's nineteen fifty one. So I know in large cap this happens a lot more because the bid spreads are small or there might be a few cents. But I've seen that a lot more in microcap. And as I've started to get bigger, I mean I'm a minnow compared to some of the much larger funds. But that's something that. I'm like, okay, who's doing this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which market makers are getting involved in playing these games? So that's that's where um, I think market structure, I'm kind of curious on the micro cap side. I'm not an expert in that area, but I'd like to know a little bit more about how is that affecting um, prices, mm. volumes, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we were talking about ETFs earlier. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much more influence ETFs have today mm-hmm. versus five years ago. How much of the volume is that? Um, and then from a structural point of view, like just meeting companies, doing things like that, I, I think it's just the same as it's always been. Um, there's some managements that will talk to you, some that won't. Um, you have to do your due diligence, uh, go in there, uh, find your margin of safety as well as you can, um, at least from a fundamental perspective. If you're a different type of investor, um, I'd be actually be curious, you know, growth investors, mm-hmm. guys that are doing more uh uh, startup type things. How are they? How are those uh, working out in terms of the current financing market for them? Because from what I've seen, a lot of them, it, it's become a lot harder. Like the haves have become much stronger, and the have-nots, it's become a lot harder um, in microcap to raise money. Even though the economy is doing great, it's really interesting to see that bifurcation. So another question I had, and and I'd love to get your perspective on this running a microcap fund. You know, what what are some of the implications for the tax cuts that just re- recently happened in microcaps? Not tax cuts in microcaps, tax cuts in general. But <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so one of the good things about the tax cut is um, 
a lot of my tax knowledge has gone away over the last 10 plus years, but now that it's all new, we're all on the same page. Oh, so, so if you're new to it, you can actually, we can all learn together. Um, but for microcaps, since they're mostly domestic, it's gonna be a pretty big positive mm -hmm. for the ones that are profitable and have uh, some type of competitively advantaged business because their tax rates are coming down they have an advantage in their business. It's not really, they're not gonna compete it away necessarily in their local communities. Mm -hmm. Big companies, it's probably a little bit different because it's more competitive. There might be some competing away. Um, I think banks will probably be less competed away. So for community banks, um, I think it'll be a huge, huge benefit. Mm -hmm. So another thing I had, I wanted to ask you, and, and it's something again that we haven't discussed too much on this podcast are option strategies. And, you know, I was doing some background research on your firm and I've seen a couple of interviews that you've done in, in the past and you've discussed this idea of a value-based option strategy. You know, what, what, what does that mean? Sure. It's kind of using options as another tool to express your investment. So if we think a stock is mispriced, options are just another tool where we can take advantage of that mispricing. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the big advantages is we can limit our risk. So we can sell, if we think a stock is cheap, we can sell put spreads, for example. And we would do a spread instead of selling uh, naked put options to take away that tail risk in, some, in case something wacky happens. Um, we could buy long-term calls, um, leaps on some of these really mispriced names. So because it's a derivative, it's just one more level of mispricing. Mm -hmm. And you could get some more leverage on the upside or you know, bring in some income on that. And um, that's just kind of how... Um, one reason we've come to do that is our business model is by selling these put spreads or buying these leaps or more on the put spread side, we're uh, creating float. Mm. So one of Buffett's greatest things he's done is he's made his money not just investing in high quality businesses, which is what 99% of people focus their time on, but he has a constant stream of income coming in that he can deploy. Mm. Whereas institutional managers, unless you have inflows, you're pretty much just reallocating Right. from position to position. And that can be great unless you start getting outflows and then it's tough. So I've tried to model our business where we can kind of create inflows where we're not necessarily uh, dependent on constant inflows or client money to run the company. Interesting. So that way we can not only, so the option side depends on how good are we are at, because options at the end of the day are insurance. Sure. How good are we at underwriting uh, the valuation of certain companies and selling that insurance on them. And that's how we, I try to control it where we're not taking too much risk, but we're generating income that we can deploy into these cheap companies mm. and keep going. And then the third, I guess, um, part of the triangle, I guess you could say, is deferring taxes as long as possible. Mm. So if you own these high quality companies and they're secular growers, good areas run by good people, you can get that long-term value creation by deferring taxes as well. And mm. you can keep compounding, because if you, by these deep value names, which I learned about early, yeah, maybe you make 50%, but you lose a huge chunk to taxes, especially selling within a year. And you have to generate so much more returns year after year if you keep buying and selling rather than owning a great company for multiple years. Mm -hmm. So kind of all those lessons I learned, I tried to apply it to forming my business and saying, okay, what is a sustainable way of not only running our fund and our business, but what type of companies will lend to the most value creation over time. And just from math, I thought the compounding is the way to go versus, and also 
it's a little bit easier uh, physically <laughs> rather than finding those you know uh, returns every year and turning over the portfolio so often. Why don't more funds adopt this type of strategy, or or do they? And I'm and I'm just naive. <laughs> it's a good question. I think maybe a uh, few might use options in different ways, but um, I think everyone focuses their time on the investment side and not on maybe the business model or others. Because one thing, especially starting out a fund, um, I mean, that's, that can be a whole new conversation, but everyone spends so much time on marketing mm. and starting a fund, getting investors. Sure. And for me, I almost so much time between sleep, family, friends, investing, doing what I like. Most people cut out sleep and probably maybe a little bit of family, a little bit of friends, others. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to cut out marketing because I tried to learn out the lessons from a lot of what other people were doing. And they were on the road all the time doing pitch books. And they might get a few investors here or there. And for structural reasons, it's hard to allocate to emerging managers. And I said, okay, how can I run this as a business without you know, making my time a little bit more how I want to use it? And so that's kind of how I came up with the idea of, okay, how can I create some sort of a float or some other way of doing inflows? So that way I can get clients through in, uh, referrals, which is very uh, efficient for them and me, mm -hmm. and I can also build the value of the fund. It also it makes sense because if you, if you don't have that and you are just focusing on the investing side and you have to turn over your portfolio every year, you're sometimes having to sell a name that you probably don't necessarily want to sell, but you have to in order to make sure that you have uh, enough to allocate for the following year. 100% correct. And having seen that when I was on the institutional side, it's tough because you have to make, when you have to make- the company too sometimes. Absolutely, especially in the micro cap, yeah. right? And uh, one of the toughest decisions is, oh, this company's cheap. <laughs> Which one is slightly cheaper that I have to reallocate out of or we have to move? And if you have inflows or outflows, those are, those are not the easiest decisions to make because what if you're, I mean, we all know if something might be undervalued, but what degree? Is it 30%, 35% undervalued? This one's 45% undervalued. It could be, that's within a margin of safety or if a small discount rate changes, mm -hmm. you could be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's why if you can, you wanna hold that as long as possible and let everything grow into it. But asset managers, insurance companies, sometimes they have to make those tough decisions. And like you said, they have big tax consequences. Yeah. You know, if microcap companies didn't have to face enough already, they, <laughs> even when they get that investment from a fund, you know, they, they're, it's, it's like you just, you're, you're kinda, you're, you're just at the mercy of them and, and, uh, and you know, potentially uh, being left out for, for their reallocation, you know? You're, you're so right, and um, that's where another thing that we looked at to get more float from just options is ETFs. Mm -hmm. So there are some ETFs that we've seen that track what they're supposed to track well and some not as well. So there's some ways where you can uh, maybe go long one side, short the other, create some float, and you can actually take advantage of those arbitrage um, uh, possibilities. Mm -hmm. So that so those are the ways that I've tried to position the business other than just traditional value investing. I look at this more as uh, analyzing products sure. more than analyzing companies and it's just another way of kind of adding value to the fund and our clients. Mm -hmm. So then this is one of my favorite questions to ask. You know, what experience and and you talked quite a bit about a few of your experiences, but maybe what was one experience specifically 
that really helped guide your microcap investing strategy? You know, something that you were asked to do or that you saw, you know, well, you don't have to name a name of a company, but just that you were like, okay, I, the mental note, you know, February 21st, uh, 2003, you know, you know what I'm saying? I think the lessons that I learned um, at my uh, old uh, asset managers and what friends did at their companies uh, taught me a lot. Um, I don't think I have a sp anything specific, but I'll, I'll give a few examples. Um, some of these deep value names were really, they took up a lot of time. They're very time consuming. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we identify you know, a great microcap company, good balance sheet, good management, um, and it can grow for a while, the funny thing is it doesn't take long to do that analysis. Mm -hmm. The hardest part is the discipline of buying or trimming or letting it just keep going. Mm -hmm. And what happens, especially in an institutional environment, um, you spend 90 plus percent of your time on problem children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're just like, why am I doing this? And we were talking about the returns of, you know, you're talking about turnover every year. And you back into it and you say, why am I doing all this for such a little return over time when I'm spending 10% of my time on such great things that are providing most of my returns. Mm. So I learned to kind of cut off what I wasn't as good at on the deep value side and say, you know what, let me spend little to no time on that and spend all my time on the stuff that's adding all my, that's worth all my returns. Mm -hmm. So that's probably one of the biggest lessons I learned is stick with what you're good at and try and cut off the stuff that's killing your returns. Because if you can, even if you don't improve your returns very much on, um, that side, if you cut off your bad stuff, you're already ahead. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one of the biggest lessons I learned through multiple names and, and over time seeing, seeing what to do. Yeah, time management can definitely be uh, <laughs> incredibly crucial. A absolutely. And that's something where in the thick of things, you don't think about it. Like when you're looking at a deep value name, you're, you're just saying, oh, I need to figure this out. I need to talk to them. Oh, yeah. But then when you take a step I mean, back. News releases from like yeah. 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all sorts of arcane things. I mean, yeah. I, I became a credit analyst during the financial crisis. I was looking at a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of credit. And it was great, a great experience. Right. I, I learned so much. But that's when you say, why am I doing this? You take a step back and say, you know what? I have these great companies here that require uh, my trust, my evaluation of their judgment, mm -hmm. you know, the business. That's a completely different calculation than doing right. very – uh, looking at heavily at financial metrics, financial covenants, all sorts of things. And w only once I took a step back and actually thought about it clearly, I said, this is a much better use of time. And also, it kind of cuts down on my, on my um, uh, bad, bad uh, investments. Mm -hmm. So then what advice would you have for new microcap investors out there? So a couple of things I think that are really useful are um, network. Mm -hmm. Like come to your guys' conference, mm -hmm. um, come to other microcap conferences. You'll meet a lot of other investors who will teach you one thing. You'll meet uh, companies who will teach you another thing, or you might learn things you like or don't like. So that's a good uh, place to start uh, in terms of networking. Um, In terms of uh, looking at companies, I would say, like I mentioned before, find your passion. Mm -hmm. Find out what interests you because then it won't feel like work. Because I'm sure a lot of people have day jobs and are doing other things. They might be, it's hard to look at companies if you're not interested, especially after a long day of work. No one All wants right. to do that. But if it's something that you find interesting, you can stick on it for a long time. And I think if you do that with um, 
combining with networking, that's a good place to start in terms of uh, figuring out what your interests are. Um, <laughs> a great resource I like is Twitter. <laughs> um, Me too. <laughs> to, yeah, to, Twitter is great. Um, there, there's a lot of really smart people on there. I mean, there's obviously a lot of uh, funny business, but there's a lot of people, you can tell when they're writing things or saying things, they know the business well. Um, whether they're actually operating the business or whether they're um, analysts and investors, which there's quite a few on, you can tell they know their stuff, especially the ones that are very sarcastic. They really know what they're talking about because <laughs> they, they've seen a lot of things. They become jaded. They, but, and those are really funny, too. They're amusing, but there's also a lot of truth mm -hmm. in what they're saying. So I think as a new microcap guy, there's a lot of discussion about certain microcap stocks where people will say, oh, I met this company or I went to the annual meeting. I mean, I see that a lot, and I'm like, you can't. You won't get that from a news service, um, sell side research, or others. So there's a lot of um, things you can do there. And another thing I would say: um, try and start a business, mm. even if it's something silly, whatever it is. You'll become much better at asking questions. Because if you have to start a business, you'll say, "Okay, where does our revenue come from? What are expenses? Who's our vendors? Who's our suppliers?" You start to learn all the little questions you can ask. And then when you talk to different companies in that sector, you'll say, oh, who do you guys use for this? Or how are you guys doing this? And you might say, oh, these guys are doing a terrible job. Their costs are so high. Or the, and that's when you learn what opportunities there are for improvement or are they running like a well-oiled machine. So that's something that um, I, I would advise. And that's why I think a lot of you know, startup managers are doing a great job, even if it does or doesn't work out, because you learn how the asset management business really works. And you know, okay, what matters to running that business in terms of how much does it cost to hire an analyst? How much does it hire a marketing person? What other things can I outsource? So I think those are the things that I, I would advise that if you do any of those, it will lead you to something where you can keep going and maybe find something interesting. And Chris, where can my audience go and find more information about you and, uh, and your firm? Sure, uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Chris V. Abraham. Uh, I don't tweet, but I follow a lot of the other guys. Um, so if you want to contact me through there or reach out to Bobby, I'm happy to talk. Um, You're retweeting I'll, this, though, okay? I will. I will. <laughs> there you go. Um, and then uh, at email is info at cvainvest.com. Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast, and uh, hopefully uh, see you again soon. Yeah, had a great time. Thanks. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Chris, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>